You are about to embark upon the great crusade. The old myth. The eyes of the world are upon you. Not classroom theory. Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You're listening to the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack, where listeners can support this work that I'm doing. WesleyYang.substack.com. Your task will not be an easy one. Ahead will be long. We're going to make sure the society wins. So we're here with uh, Joseph Burgo, who is a psychotherapist, a, uh, an author uh, of uh, many books on psychological subjects, uh, widely published in uh, most major publications, uh, and also fairly recently, I think, became uh, a co-director of an organization called uh, Genspect, which is in the process of becoming Europe and perhaps the world's uh, you know, leading organization, I don't know if it would use the term gender critical, but an organization seeking alternatives to uh, medicalization for those who are suffering from uh, the condition of gender dysphoria. Uh, Burgo gave a, uh, a talk at the gender, uh, at the Genspect uh, bigger picture conference, which just happened last week where I was in attendance. Uh, very interesting talk that I have republished on my Substack. Uh, entitled Autogynophilia and the Sexualization of Shame that, uh, that, that, that gave us an intimate look at some of his experiences treating, uh, male autogynophiles in his practice and giving us a composite figure of one of the important pathways to cross-sex identification, uh, which has been sort of overtly suppressed, uh, for the last couple of decades, uh, in the uh, in the clinical literature and in the, in our popular understanding of uh, what transgender ideal, uh, identity consists of, but that is actually openly celebrated, which is a fact that I talk about in my prefatory notes to his essay by, you know, many of the leading transgender writers and thinkers of our time, including a person named Andrea Long Chu, uh, who is a trans-identified uh, male uh, who has medically transitioned. Uh, I actually at one point saw or actually may have even received uh, the funeral that this person gave for uh, for his, her uh, penis. Uh, so through a party for that purpose and in, in advance of his uh, his bottom surgery, uh, who just won a Pulitzer Prize and uh, who won a Pulitzer Prize for works that uh, overtly declares himself to be an autogynophile, talks about the autogynophilic structure of desire, um, and, uh, and, uh, nonetheless, at the very same moment where one is not allowed to talk about that. And so it's that very weird epistemological sejira that I'm interested in, in, in excavating in my own view. It's, it is the function of a kind of nether logic that, that, that governs, uh, a movement of people who are not what they say they are demanding recognition as what, as not what they are. Uh, in a movement that is not what it claims to be. Um, and, um, you know, it claims to be a civil rights movement, unleashing those who were inherently born in the wrong body on the basis of a, of a disembodied, non-observable uh, a gender identity uh, that, that is deserving of legal recognition, uh, as opposed to a group of people who are suffering from... Uh, a psychological condition that, that 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 entails a lot of pain that in some circumstances 
uh, may not be quelled by anything other than, uh, you, you know, some kind of surgical or hormonal intervention. I, I don't know. I, there are certainly those who say that they've been helped by it. Uh, but, but that, uh, f- for the most part, and I think this is part of what GenSpec stands for is something that ought to be, um, you know, addressed and can be addressed, right? Through, through less medically invasive means. So let's go over that essay and, and talk about if you could just kind of summarize some of the points and talk about the, the people that you dealt with, uh, within it and, and the, the stories that you evoked. Sure. Well, there's, um, I talk about three different patients in this essay. Um, and I describe for the first two in particular, somewhat uh, traumatic childhoods, a, a really damaged relationship with their own sense of being men, um, deep shame about who they were and where they came from, and that they escaped from themselves through this fantasy of um, becoming a woman, becoming something completely other than who they felt themselves to be. And what, what, what I found interesting um, was that th- this the shame feeling, which is incredibly painful, um, becomes sexualized um, so that humiliation becomes a source, uh, an amplifier for sexual gratification. Um, that was that was interesting to me. Um, and, you know, this is a small population of men that I'm working with. I don't have the experience that, you know, Mike Bailey has or Ray Blanchard. But, you know, I'm seeing these themes. Um, I'm seeing that shame is a major issue and that um, the development of a fetish is a way of coping with shame by turning it into um, a sexualized experience. Um, you know, my my last book is about shame. I've been very interested in shame um, for years and years. Um, and my book before that was about narcissism and narcissism to me being a, um, a defense against unbearable shame, sense of defect being damaged. Instead of being defective and damaged, you are superior. You're better than other people. You project all your humiliation, um, into those other people. So, um, what I'm finding is links between my earlier work on shame and narcissism and then this new, this new population of men that I'm working with. Does that make sense? So, sure. So when you first encounter this population of men, and it, it was not that long ago that you first kind of it's took really them on? It's only been the last year or so, year and a half. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what was the extent of your kind of knowledge base? What had the literature told you and uh, to expect from them? Uh, or did you go in informed in that way? Or was it more just uh, patients of a certain kind showed up and you had to figure out how to think about them? I, I've, been, I've been interested in autogynephilia for 10 years. Um, and hmm. I started, I wrote a couple of posts on my blog back when I was blogging in 2014 about how to think about autogynephilia because it struck me as being a type of narcissism. I mean, to my point of view, what could be more narcissistic than taking yourself as the object of your own desire? I mean, that's to me, I have everything that I need and want all in myself. It seems pretty narcissistic. I reached out 
in 2014 to Anne Lawrence, and we had a conversation back and forth by email about this. And she told me, which Mike Bailey also told me, that autogynophiles couldn't be narcissistic because they're not grandiose. Um, and this was very frustrating to me. And it, it, it really encapsulates where I think we are in, in the mental health field, that you've got the DSM telling you that narcissism is a, a symptom checklist. And I talk about this in the essay, um, that, you know, it, it has these features, primarily grandiosity, excessive need for attention. And that's not the way I grew up understanding narcissism. I went through psychoanalytic training. It's like, to me, narcissism is a defense against something. It's a defensive character character structure where you're avoiding something that you can't bear to feel. Now, in my um, school of thought, the way I learned it was it's, it's you can't bear neediness. You can't bear dependency. So instead of acknowledging need and dependency, you already have everything you need, right? You don't, you don't need anybody. Mm. In fact, it's other people who want you. Um, that's true as far as it goes. Um, that took me about halfway through my career until I started realizing I, I was at kind of a dead end with some patients that I wasn't understanding. Um, and that's when I started getting interested in shame, which was neglected in my training. Um, and I spent a lot of time reading, thinking, writing a book about shame. It, in, it totally changed my practice. And then, you know, I began to think about narcissism instead as a defensive character structure against unbearable shame, um, which is what I was seeing in, in my practice, frankly, um, in myself to some degree, that my, my deeper understanding came from understanding the shame in myself I wasn't facing by, you know, becoming, you know, uh, well, I had it all, right? I had, I had the, the two couple yuppie life on the West side and three kids and it all looked good. And, and then I, you know, wasn't dealing with the fact that I was gay. So I, you know, kind of had to get real. Um, and that was a huge breakthrough for me. So I brought all of that to me when, when men started reaching out to me. One guy I was on Sella and Stasha's, uh, Sasha's podcast and, um, talking about narcissism, talking about these ideas. And then he contacted me and he said, you know, I heard what you were saying. I just thought you, you might be um, somebody who could really have an open mind about what I'm going through and help me understand it. That's the first patient I describe in my, in my essay. Mm. Um, it's been okay. a very powerful, very meaningful relationship. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about this standard definition of what autogynophilia is and just go back right. to basics and let's talk yeah. about it. And how did, yeah. how did we come to know that this was a condition at all? And, uh, and what is it? It's very simply, it's men's sexual arousal at the idea or image of themselves as a woman. So there are, it's what we used to think as fetishistic cross-dressers, I guess, men who dress up in women's clothes and get off on it sexually. Um, I mean, that's, it's pretty simply that. It's just that. Mm. Um, we know, we know this from Ray Blanchard, who came up with, uh, the two, the two types of different, uh, transsexuals, the homosexual, transsexual, and the autogynophilic. And then Mike Bailey wrote about it. Anne Lawrence did an exhaustive study on, mm. 
on autogynephilia. But the, the thing that I find really frustrating is these, these histories are really, uh, they're accounts of a fetish. Sometimes I think of them as the like fetishistic, and Lawrence, I think of as fetishistic account of a fetish, that it's all about the fetish, the history of the fetish, when it appeared, you know, how it affects their sex life and their relationships with no sense that maybe it means something. Um, hmm. um, you know, I, I think I mentioned in my paper that Ann Lawrence got all this data and she deleted all the like lengthy family histories of these guys mm. as if that were peripheral to her study, which I find enormously frustrating. Mm. Um, but I do think that's the way mental, my profession is these days. It's a, the idea that symptoms have meaning that mm. they might have an unconscious significance that can be sorted out, that it's a, it's a way of resolving internal conflict or it represents some defensive compromise. People don't think that in that way anymore. I mean, mm -hmm. I do feel, I do feel kind of like a dinosaur these days that, uh, so you have certain meaning. Yeah. You have certain habits of mind that are acquired through psychoanalytic training and practice that, uh, that, that are, that have, uh, that are just not part of, the way clinicians think or practice anymore. Is that right? <laughs> it, it, it seems to me to be the case. I mean, um, I'm a part of a, an, an, a, another organization called GETA, the Gender Exploratory Therapy Association. And we were introducing a set of clinical guidelines uh, to making a public announcement about how to work with gender distress. And what I realized as we were talking about it more and I was hearing from more people is people really aren't taught to do psychotherapy anymore. Not the mm -hmm. way I learned it. It's really become um, influenced by so, uh, social justice ideology. And it's yeah. now more like supportive therapy based on where you stand in the victim hierarchy. And mm -hmm. um, yeah. so it's not, yeah. So there's not much help for the cisgender white male under those circumstances. No. <laughs> there's just blame, isn't there? Or there's uh, just there's just blame. You know, you are responsible. <laughs> you are responsible for everything. And I think I, you know, in the in the third case that I talk about, it's a, this young kid I see who has been totally influenced by all of that stuff. Hates being a white male. Thinks that white men are to blame for everything that's wrong with Western civilization, and wants to opt out. You know, mm -hmm. who wants to be the bad guy? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so this kind of copy pasta that the, the culture has been vomiting at us, uh, for the last, uh, five years or so, uh, you know, we see it as, you know, this, this is, this is odious garbage and it's a shame that it's being, uh, pumped out there. But there are recipients at the other end of that pipeline who don't have any, don't have any defenses built up against it. And, yeah. uh, and you, you're and, you might, and you're seeing some of them wash up I on am your seeing some of them. you're seeing their wrecks wash up on your shore. Totally, but you uh, know, even before these guys came to me, uh -huh. um, the crisis in masculinity has been a big interest of mine. I wrote a book proposal um, which my agent took out three years ago, so that would be before any of this. Really looking at trying to look at positive aspects of masculinity. Yeah. Um, because I feel like men, you know, men are just vilified. The, um, the American, um, psycholo psychological association issued its guidelines for working with men and it basically it pathologizes masculinity. All masculinity is toxic masculinity. Mm. And, you know, it might be kind of funny that the, that the gay man wants to do this, but I really want to 
support men in their male identities. I think it's men are in a terrible crisis in this country right now. They're in a terrible place, largely because I think they've they've lost many sources of um, self-respect avenues for expressing their masculinity that makes them feel good about themselves. We've lost all these manufacturing jobs, all these traditional male occupations. And then, you know, they're unemployed and then they're told they're bad for being part of the patriarchy. So I don't know. It feels like we're, we're in a terrible place in this country and we need to do something to help men out. That's what, that's what I would like to do more than anything. So there is um, the Of Boys of Men and Men, uh, you, you know, this book. Richard Reeves' book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm listening to it right now. And it's, you know, it's quite familiar with me because I, you know, I read The End of Men when it came out. And so there's this sequence of nonfiction books that keeps kind of repackaging the same statistics about education and employment right. and are like, you know, some something's happening here and we're, we're, we don't seem able to, uh, we don't seem able to operationalize it. Right. And make it uh, a problem that the culture cares about, even though it's right. one of the biggest problems that we have. So your book l looked at those kind of uh, statistical indices or, or was it trying to, uh, you know, sort of be in a psychological uh, approach? Yeah, it wasn't that kind of a book. It wasn't statistical. What it was, it's kind of looked at evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. And what are the enduring traits on balance that men demonstrate in cultures across the world. And then by looking at different examples of people who appear to be non-conforming to show how, in fact, they actually are expressing these valued characteristics. My favorite example is like RuPaul, who I think is incredibly masculine. Mm. Um, you know, he's right. ambitious. He's an alpha mm. male. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, just because he's a cross-dresser doesn't mean He's, uh, he's not masculine. I have a an essay that I will finish one day called Boys Will Be Boys Even in Drag. Mm -hmm. um, right, right. Because if, yeah, yeah. if you look at the dynamics on that show, they're men. Uh, right. Uh, so uh, I did read a book called uh, What Are Men Good For by uh, Roy Baumeister. Are you familiar? Do you, I know, do you know who he is, but I haven't read that book. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he makes various arguments. Uh, one of the ones that I remember is that the emphasis on self-esteem, which may be good for girls in kind of boosting their, uh, actually, uh, leads to, uh, a complacency and unwillingness to strive when you give it to men because you have to treat men, you have to treat boys differently. You have to motivate them differently. You can't just tell them, oh, you're good because you have to, you have to treat them the way, you know, football coaches do. Like you're nothing and you have to earn it. Right. And so that's, that's a kind of, uh, insight. And when you, so you give this thing that may be helpful to some, you know, to girls, uh, who, who might need a little, uh, stimulus to gumption, right? Uh, if you give that to boys and you're like, oh, you're fine the way you are, right? Um, it's actually, uh, quite maladaptive for them. Um, so the book is filled with stuff like that and sort of. Mary Harrington had an interesting yeah. essay this last week. I don't know if you saw it, mm -hmm. um, but she was very, she, she was, there was this example of um, a man playing a video game in the background and while his wife was tending to the baby. And yeah. this was viewed as what a slacker, what a terrible, self-centered, awful man. And she very sympathetically said, this might be the only arena in this man's life where he mm. gets to achieve some sense of, of, 
through competition of mastery and building honor, you know, mm. through competitive mastery. I thought it was, it was a lovely essay where she could see that men are different and they feel good about themselves in different ways from the way women do. Mm -hmm. Right. So the book went out and there was no interest. Is that, did, did you tell me that or like, uh, yeah, I had, the 17, I had yeah. 17 editors in New York tell me that the author fails to acknowledge that masculinity is completely constructed socially. <laughs> <laughs> and that we can shape men through mm. the correct methods to be the sort of, you know, it's the whole ah. blank slate thing. They've totally, they've totally bought into it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you made reference to like manhood in the making, that kind of anthropological survey of, of like, oh, there, there's pretty much, if you empirically go through all the cultures of the world, there's a coherent set of, uh, you know, rituals that speak to, a, you know, a unitary universal uh, structure of uh, right. masculine attainment, right? right? Absolutely, and, and 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 that we want to design institutions and the way we raise men, uh, you know, into in ways that are consistent with that. <laughs> totally, uh, I love yeah. manhood in the making. It's a really yeah. powerful book, and the other book I. I I really rely upon a lot of my thinking is uh, Carol Carol Hooven's book T, mm, yeah, the the kind of testosterone, the hormone that divides and dominates us. It's it's really helpful to in a not dogmatic way for her to she just walks you through what testosterone does and why mm. there's this bimodal distribution of traits between males and females and you know right. just to pretend that 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 isn't true is crazy. Right. 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 I mean, half of the human race is constantly being dosed on a 30 X dose of this very powerful psychoactive substance. Totally. And this, and it, it's, it, you know, it, it, it accounts for all kinds of variations uh, that, 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 uh, that remain, you know, over time and across cultures. So, yeah. So there was no space for that. You didn't know that there would be no space for that, but you learned it. And then, and then, so uh, when were you trained? Because you were trained at a time when psychologists weren't like 80% women, right? Or is, is that also part of what's happened with the kind of blanket condemnation of masculinity that the, what was it the APA that just did it recently? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I trained in the seventies. Um, mm. and in my class, I'd say it was, uh, yeah. So you're older than you look. I am older than I look. <laughs> Don't ask me my age, yeah. please. All right. Um, okay. All right. <laughs> um, and it, it was mostly, it was divided men, women, but it was a higher prestige yeah. profession then. This is also before Prozac. Prozac changed everything, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. once, right. once we gone, once we went and the D the third version of the DSM, which I'm, I'm, I'm probably get it wrong, but I think it came out during the seventies when we, when after psychiatry had kind of been, um, disgraced and had to reinvent itself, they decided to go to change to the ICD model and have a disease model of mental illness with all these, you know, medical sounding checklists. So we've, and, and then big pharma came in and we've medicalized everything. So meaning has really been eliminated and it's, it's, it's a disease model, which can be treated with drugs. That's what mental health is today or CBT yeah. therapy. Well, it had which to is be really useful. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, so it had to be slotted in and operationalized with insurance companies and so on. So that's that's also part of it, right? Right. Right. But you, you, you were still, you still got your training in a period where, you know, it, it was, it was a, a kind of conversational art form and, 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 and there would be some sage from Vienna on a couch that would kind of inculcate you into this, uh, meaning seeking and meaning making endeavor. And that, and, and those habits still adhere for you. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think about meaning. I list, I believe in the unconscious. Yeah. I listen for what people are telling me that they don't know they're saying. Um, and that used to be kind of like, you know, mm. when I, when I was a, a young psychoanalyst that we were kind of like at the top, right? You know, that was like the, the prestige yeah. type of psychotherapy. And now I don't know. Does anyone right. practice psychoanalysis anymore? <laughs> well, okay. So, uh, and a person who has that orientation toward a patient is definitely going to see a person who comes in and is like, Oh, I'm, I feel like I'm a woman, right? If they're a man, like they're, they're going to see them as a certain kind of problematic in a way that, in, in a way that like, obviously the movement, you know, does not says that you're not supposed to see them as anymore. So all those changes happens, you know, like over the course of a single career and, and, and apparently and apparently you also, you got married and had three kids in a heterosexual union and then, and then decided and then realized you were gay. I did not know this about you, but. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was married you, for 17 yeah. years. I have three children. Okay. And, um, mm -hmm. and then at some point, I think when I had my midlife crisis, I just sort of realized what I had been denying to myself for a long time. Not entirely. I sort of knew I had male attractions, but it, it just sort of became overwhelming. And, you know, I've, I've since has spent the 20 years since I divorced from my wife with my husband, the same man. Um, so, yeah, I also have um, one of my children is trans identified and alienated from me. And that was my mm. introduction to this space back in 2014. And it's part of the reason why I started getting interested in things like autogynephilia, because I just started, I just took a deep dive into everything about trans, trying to find out everything. And then I found out that there was this thing called autogynephilia, which seemed stunning to me. I'd never heard of it before. And, you know, read The Man Who Would Be Queen and, you know, Blanchard, and I read more recently read um, Anne Lawrence's work. And, you know, I, I look at these, these guys, I suppose it's partly because it's my journey has been a lot about making peace with myself as a man, feeling better mm. about my own masculinity. Which yeah. Oddly, I feel better about in my gay life than I did in my heterosexual life, my mm -hmm. ostensibly heterosexual life. Um, but I look at these men who come in and, and I, I think, well, doesn't it seem obvious that the problem is masculinity and not femininity? That mm. these are actually men, they're biological men. Why do they feel so bad about themselves as men that they feel like they need to opt out? What's going on there? And mm -hmm. that's, that's not a way that I think that the big names in this field think about them. They think about them. They've got this fetish and that kind of explains it. It's probably, probably genetic or people yeah. at least are, are prone to developing it. 
Mm-hmm. So you had these kind of uh, deans of sexology, right? Um, uh, Blanchard and so on, who they, they created this typology. It was considered, I don't know if it was settled, but it was, you know, the normal science of the time to say that, you know, there's a taxonomy, uh, transgender identified males are divisible into homosexual transsexuals uh, who are often, you know, this is something that Bailey made, you know, they're often from culture, like kind of macho cultures where it's not okay to be gay. And so you, right. w- and where it is okay to, you know, uh, you know, be a woman or something along those lines. And of course, when we refer to uh, these other cultures that have these third genders, what they typically are referring to is cultures that have no, that have a very strict gender binary where they have no way to accommodate uh, gender nonconformity or male homosexuality. And so they carve out this space for sissified men to be hostesses or, you know, whatever, uh, you know, sort of quasi prostitutes or courtesans. Um, and that's the way they handle gender nonconformity. Right. Um, whereas we created this new medicalized apparatus. It was kind of a gray area of medicine, right? This kind of half certified where you, you had these kind of medical entrepreneurs, surgeons who were kind of out on the limb, you know, both kind of compassionate toward, but also sort of interested in experimenting, right? On like, a population that wanted to cut their genitals off, right? And who are willing to, you know, accommodate them. That's, that's what transgenderism was. That's, that's what Blanchard and Bailey were kind of taking these sort of touristic deep dives into. Very sympathetic though, right? right. Because even back then there were autogonophiles who wanted to deny that there was, or there were transsexuals who wanted to deny that there was any sexual desire. Um, and 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 I think what Bailey was willing to say was, look, there's AGP is real. There's some sexual desire. I'm not going to make that a bar, right? Like I'm not going to gatekeep that. Like I'm going to say, yeah, okay, there are people who are cons- swallowed up by their sexual desires such that they start to want to not just be cross-dressers, you know, uh, sometimes, but like want to live their whole lives as women and want to entertain this fantasy that they were always women, you know, trapped in men's bodies. And uh, that's okay. You might, you, you know, he was actually very permissive, right? And this very right. welcoming figure, uh, trying to understand, be empathetic. You know, the man who would be queen provides a really sympathetic account of J- AGP. I think much more so than may even be warranted, right? Uh, but, uh, but, um, for that very reason, um, you know, he, he, him and everybody he wrote about had to be utterly dismantled, right? In one of the first real academic cancel campaigns, and I'm, you know, I'm going to write about that. And so this knowledge that we had was was dismantled, right? Like you can't talk about it. It's you, you do a Google search, you find websites calling it this, like you know, this virulently transphobic, you know, discredited theory of this prior backward generation uh, of, of men. Uh, so when you get to it at 2014, um, it, it had already been discredited, but like it was all, but it was, it was still true. I was still just like observably descriptive of reality. Right. So, so, um, so uh, talk about your first encounters with it. Did I guess you didn't have patience at that time, but you, you had, you had a son who was identifying I, I as. Had a, I had a okay. daughter. 
All right. who was trans-identified as a boy and yeah. has, uh, has medicalized and has she, she's uh, presently in contact with the rest of the family. But given, given who I am in this world, mm. you know, I'm, I'm forbidden from contacting her. Okay. I disappeared. I couldn't. I was so traumatized by the experience. I mean, we held off for four years. We did family therapy, individual therapy. We accepted her pronouns, her new name. We were, you know, while I was trying to navigate and understand all this, we were monstered by the medical and psychotherapeutic community for my suggesting that there were psychological issues involved, um, which there were. I mean, a, I had dealt with, I had dealt with gender issues in my practice, and B, I know my daughter better than you do, and you know. How old was your daughter me. when she came to you? This was fourteen when she first announced. She's twenty-four now. Okay, so she was fifteen at the time. Yeah, uh, a high school student in Manhattan. No, we were living in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Then. Okay, yeah, and and, and you were still. Uh, I was, still- I was divorced and okay. my, my husband and I had half custody. We were bringing up the kids okay. um, along with my, my ex-wife very cooperatively. So we, we okay. were, we were, we, we parent well together and we were kind yeah. of on the same page. We got therapy. It was very hard to find anybody who was willing to take a, a psychodynamic approach, something like the way I think, because not though that many people work that way anymore. I found yeah. someone who I thought was good. And my daughter then said, no, I want to go to a different therapist. And she found her own therapist who was an affirmative therapist. Yeah. I didn't know what that meant back then. Um, yeah. So um, we held off giving our permission for testosterone until a couple months before her 18th birthday, when she could do it anyway. And okay. she did. It had a very drastic and, bad effect on her mental health and yeah. she kind of went off on all of us and distanced herself from everybody else in the family for about four years it was awful so anyway i i was traumatized by that and i stayed away from gender yeah um and then i guess it was a two and a half years ago three years ago i just decided i was hearing about kids detransitioning. And I think I was hopeful that my daughter would detransition. So I started doing some research. Um, and the first thing I came across was Benjamin Boyce. Hmm. And he was my entry into the detrans world. And I listened to, you know, a dozen of those interviews. And I started taking notes of yeah. all of the things I was hearing in the detransitioners. And I wrote a paper. Yeah called when when sh- when gender transition is a cure for shame because mm. i just kept hearing all of these themes running through and i just thought okay you have clinical experience you know something about gender you need to get involved in this space so i first reached out to sasha ayad and um asked her if she could help me get started would she supervise me and she said no but you should join geta this new organization that's formed I started getting referrals immediately working with adolescents, uh, trans-identified kids in their teens, really sent to me by their parents. Yeah. Um, and then I started working more closely with um, Stella O'Malley and Genspect. 
in the, and I run the clinical portion of their program beyond trans, which is a psychosocial support for detransitioners. And then as I, you know, I, part of my job was to screen the patients coming through who wanted individual therapy and to try and find a therapist to work with them. And I started inviting these young men into my practice because I was really interested in what was going on. And, mm. and that's how I've, I've developed, you know, the beginning of an expertise in this area. And then, you know, the other patient I described came to me after um, a wider lens. And I've had other people come to me because of that podcast. So uh, yeah. it's, been a, it's been a long journey. Yeah. So it, it, it's, do you believe that your uh, daughter, uh, she's a high school student at 15 in Chapel Hill, uh, she and she's one of the early rapid onset gender dysphoria cohort, female, uh, no prior uh, history of gender nonconformity, uh, a variety I, I of psychological comorbidities. Does she I fit that profile? That or? Mostly, I would I yeah. would not say that there was no evidence of gender nonconformity. Okay, she was a tomboy. Yeah. Right. She was a tomboy, and I had always assumed she was going to be a lesbian, which was, mm. would have been fine. You know, I really uh-huh. didn't have a problem with that. Okay. I think she was she was somewhat had a, she struggled to find a place for herself. She always felt like a bit of an outsider. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. had a harder time making friends, and I think she got radicalized by Tumblr. Um, that's where she found it, and I think trans, you know, it, it gave her everything she, you know, always been looking for. I mean, at least mm-hmm. it seemed to, right? Mm-hmm. So when she came to you, was it, there had been no real presaging, and but she came and made a declaration that, you know, I'm actually a guy? <laughs> what had happened was there was, um, she was doing some tech theater at her mm-hmm. high school. Yeah. And we went to a performance and we saw the program and she had her boy's name listed in the program. And you'd never encountered and, it before. You had no idea. No. And you're like, what's this name? <laughs> yeah. And, and she gradually mm. um, came out and said, yeah, I'm, I'm trans. And I handled it really badly. <laughs> I mm. did. Um, you know. What I did you know most, about trans at that moment? Just <laughs> uh, what, I, what I did know, and this is one of the reasons why I, from the very beginning, had very strong feelings about this is, one of my first and longest cases I worked with was a trans-identified um, woman, young woman. I started seeing when she was 17. Okay. And I worked with her for, you know, many, many years and really got an in-depth understanding of what had happened with her, her feelings about her femininity and, and had loaded all of her shame into her feminine body, particularly into her vagina, and mm-hmm. wanted, you know, wanted to opt out of it, wanted to escape from shame. So I, I knew a fair bit about what might drive, you know, a desire to transition. And I could see a lot of very similar issues in, in my daughter, that she was struggling with some shame, some sense of being a misfit, an outsider, and she was looking to opt out of it. Um, so I, you know, I told her, you know, that you can't do that. You know, there's no such thing as being born in the wrong body. You know, there's a biological reality. This isn't true. You know, and I, I did it pretty bluntly and insensitively. <laughs> so when you say you handled it badly, you just kind of 
instinctively said what you thought was true, which was maybe not, not the not a thing, not the appropriate uh, therapeutic uh, response, no, I guess. No. And you are a therapist, so you know the the, <laughs> the yes. appropriate no, response. But I guess with one's children, it's different. <laughs> yeah, it, it all goes out the window. <laughs> okay, so you did that, and so and my dad is a hateful transphobe, uh, and she's so. What happens then, uh, and how do we get to how? And how do you like kind of? What happens then? <laughs> what vis a vis my daughter? What happens yeah. then is yeah. she she has a violent reaction mm-hmm. to taking testosterone, and female bodies females are yeah. not equipped for these right. levels of testosterone. Mm-hmm. And um, she really went off on her mother, went off on me, and yeah. progressively over the next couple of years. Um, cut us all off one by one until okay. she had completely alienated yeah. herself from her family. Mm-hmm. She had an education trust that my father-in-law had set up for all of the, the grandchildren, um, yeah. which she was able to access and use in any way she wanted when she turned 21. Yeah. She used, she used for top surgery and to live on for mm. a couple of years. Right. And, you know, very bad mental health. You know, I won't go into all the details of what she went through, but she yeah. ended up in crisis and has, right. you know, had a rapprochement with her mom because she really needs help. Yeah. So, yeah, it, but, just, at, yeah. But at no point <laughs> did you ever contemplate the idea that, uh, oh, maybe she's really a boy. <laughs> no. No, I, there's no one is born in the wrong body. I'm sorry. Why? How does that make sense? Why would, why would biology do that? Why would evolution make people that way? It makes absolutely no sense. And uh, and your your wife was in accord. The other siblings, you know. I mean, now were you yeah. surrounded? Was there already this kind of glitter family, uh, you know, and school affirming kind of stuff back then, or totally. was it a, still a little yeah. early? Yeah. Chapel Hill, um, Jesse Holmes so, so once just, sorry. They, they were already using her pronouns and new names at school and they hadn't notified you and that was the normal policy. And so all this kind of crap that we're seeing coming out, like it was already fully in place back then. It was already there. Jesse yeah. Helms, the, the conservative senator from North Carolina, once described uh, Chapel Hill a, a, as a zoo that ought to be fenced off from the rest of the state. It's this hyper liberal enclave right. um, of, of right thinking people. You know, they're very all of them really highly educated parents, yeah, yeah. academics from right. Duke and UNC. And um, they're all supportive of this ideology. So, so they took they took every kind of they push out an update right uh, like a like a software update right and and in places like in 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 these kind of liberal enclaves especially actually in ones that are surrounded by red uh, hinterlands right, right. Uh, they just take them up immediately they don't question them and uh, oh yeah being born in the wrong body and uh, you know that makes perfect sense to us and so were you were you, were you sort of already in tension and in crisis with both peers and with the school administration as a result or the school administration, we didn't have much to do with, but my, my interactions with the, I was, I was, I was set back and I didn't really know how to cope with this. Um, uh-huh. So, you know, when I approached the, the people that I thought would help, 
Um, and I think this is, I speak for parents all over America who are having exactly this experience. You, you reach out to the mental health professionals and they'll tell you that you need to affirm your child's identity and you're a bigot. I was told, you know, I was told that back then. And the, the endocrinologist who we consulted with just to get an idea of what the reality was of these drugs, I said, I just said in passing, it's a kind of frustrating that I can't find anybody who's willing to look at the, the mental health aspects of this, like what else might be going on. And she looked at me with utter contempt and said, you're not going to find that. You know, like, what, a, what an outlandish idea that there's a meaning to this, these symptoms. It's a, it was really, it was humiliating and awful. Incredible. So, but you know, you're, you're a credentialed, uh, medical professional within this field. You're a colleague of these people. Uh, you have standing within that community. And yet somehow your divergence, such the consensus had coalesced to the point where, and you hadn't even noticed this. And I think most people didn't that like, you know, your reflexive belief, uh, that uh, of course no one is born in the wrong body. Um, what already made you a pariah? <laughs> totally. And, and I think, you know, this, this has a chilling effect on the profession. A number of people at the conference talked about this is that I know lots of people who won't go anywhere near gender. Yeah. Be mm -hmm. Because it's just too fraught or they've jumped on the, you know, the affirmative bandwagon and have built practices, you know, affirming children, which is unconscionable to me, but they do it. Right. And, and there are many states that have bans. I guess North Carolina doesn't, uh, but. Uh, on, on what they call conversion therapy, meaning if you help a child be comfortable in their own body, you are converting them from this fleeting psychological sense that they have that they might be a member of the opposite sex, which we're going to reify and entrench as if it's their true identity and any deviation from it is a crime. Right. And it is, a, it, which is insane. That is an absolutely <laughs> insane position. And it's actually the opposite of what's true is one of the things that I'm very upset about is that a lot of these gender norm, gender nonconforming kids who would grow up to be gay or lesbian are being converted to trans. Yep. That's the real conversion therapy. In my um, here's another way in which I'm a, a, a pariah is um, I used to sit on the board of directors and was an officer and friends with everybody at my LGBT center in Palm yeah. Springs where I live. And um, when I dove into this space, I, you know, and started writing, I gave them an article that I'd written and I said, do you want me to step down? These are my friends. And they said, yes. Please go away because they've all jumped on board with the trans thing. It's, you know, the LGB center, LGBT center is now everything is trans. And, you know, if I speak up about, well, what if they're gay? You know, this is my, there was a panel. This is, this is my big question. What if they're gay and not trans? And I'm treated like, you know, go away. <sighs> But you're still able to practice. They didn't cancel and destroy you, or they didn't try to, or they didn't succeed at it. <laughs> no, the, the the fortunate thing is that I'm at a point in my career where where I have enough money. They can't really. I'm in private practice. They yeah. can't cancel me. I mean, what no. are they going to do to me? <laughs> well, I don't know. They, you know, just uh, you, you know, uh, 
brigade your online uh, whatever reviews. I mean, I guess there's all kinds of things they can do, but um, but they haven't they haven't actually tried. Like they allow you to exist. And, they, but, you know, they they will periodically say something on Twitter about something right. I've written, and you know, my policy is never engage with someone who's obviously hostile or incapable of critical thought. I never yeah. engage, so it kind of stops. You know, yeah. you know, doesn't build up into anything. Yeah. How did how did this new consensus coalesce so quickly, though? Because you were once a normative figure in your field, and I think normal people once thought that it wasn't normal to believe that you were born in the wrong body, right? Like, I'm just fascinated in the mechanics of this sudden, rapid onset, right, coup that happened within the field and within all of society. Uh, you know, you, well, you know, you've you've read the books. Many people are talking about, you know, the the long march of this ideology through all of the institutions. Yeah. So there are better people better able to speak to that than I am. But um, one one thing I um, I will talk about because it comes out of my clinical practice is is I think that this this ideology which which is seems so detached from reality the 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 disappearance of teenagers into the online spaces in the wake of COVID and social media and living in these virtual worlds in which I'm finding they're, they're very detached from their body, which is if we're not, if we're not attached to our body, we can't rely on our senses and our emotions to tell us what's true, what's real. It's just this, you can just move words and images around in your head and create this new reality. So Mm -hmm. I I do think social media and COVID and kids spending way too much time in virtual worlds has made them, has is fertile ground for an ideology that just comes in and said, yeah, you can just change that. Just like you can change your avatar. You can change your sex. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's a huge part of it, at least for the kids I'm seeing. Yeah, so it has untethered them, and the question is whether it untethered them in a way that is permanent. Um, I hope not. I, yeah. I talk in, in, a, in a, a paper I just wrote, talk about because I feel the exchange of words with these kids is often futile, where mm. words are just kind of being moved around, but they don't have any connection to truth is that I often instruct them in getting back down into their body, making, you know, paying more attention. Cause I think, how do we, how do we know what we feel? I think I, I notice with sadness. I know that I'm sad because there's these sensations around my eyes and at the back of my throat and in my chest. I don't know that I'm registering it that in that way, but I think that's how we know then these kids are so detached from their bodies, they don't know what they feel. So as I kind of teach them about getting down into their body and tell them where they should be directing their attention, often they just start crying. Mm. You know, there's this, dis- this disconnected grief, sadness. They don't even know what it is. They have no words to talk about it. So I'm hopeful that in this kind of work, you can, you can reforge these connections. It's mm. why I tell, it's like why I t- always tell parents, Get them off the screens and get them outside. You know, get them mm. doing something. You know, using their bodies because these kids they just spend so much time in virtual worlds, really completely out of touch with their bodies. That that's just that can't be good, right? So you're able to practice with gender dysphoric kids from California, 
and uh, you know where they have banned conversion therapy. But I suppose you would have to be reported, and I don't know if anybody has been reported and punished for pursuing a practice whose purpose is to arrive at, look, a non-transgender outcome. <laughs> there are people who are doing it. You're openly kind of advertising it, and it's nominally against the law. Um, is anyone actually... Are people, in fact, prevented from doing the kind of therapy you're doing? You're not prevented, uh, and I guess maybe no. nobody is? Or the, on, the only person I know who was reported in that way was uh, a therapist named Stephanie Wynn in Oregon. Mm. And yeah. they, came after, they tried to come after a license, and she prevailed. So it didn't work. Okay, um, yeah. If they came after me, I really don't care. I would just resign my license and practice as a life coach. I mean, mm. yeah. you know, I'm just... right. I, I just feel like I'm kind of immune there. I'm not worried about anybody coming after me. Yeah, yeah. All right. But, uh, but a lot of people are, and I think the worst effect is not the people who are practicing and are afraid of being reported. It's all the therapists who won't go near it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Just out of uh, the risk is there. The risk may in practice be nominal because if the parents are sending the kids, right, it's because they want that. And so even if it's nominally illegal, right, you're not going to get reported. <laughs> uh, right. So nonetheless, it's enough to just scare everybody off. And, and, and that's enough. Therapists so are really scared. It's amazing how scared people are. So as all these organizations are captured, right. And you, they, 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 announced that they're captured by the, you know, the, the guidance they give about masculinity or just the other kind of, you know, DEI copy pasta that they send out, right? You know, they, they, they can, there's this dynamic where there's a push and a pull, right? There's, there's, they're, they're putting all of their energy into stuff that is false, right? Into, into claims about, the reversibility and the efficacy of puberty blockers that actually isn't evidenced in anything, right? That all these expert organizations and very highly prestigious organizations are willing to put themselves into with no sense that they are endangering their own authority, uh, their own credibility. But I guess it's a longer run thing, right? They're willing to spend it all down in order to get outcomes. But, uh, you know, there, eventually there's going to be some kind of erosion and people like yourself, can just be life coaches on a fee for service basis and, 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 and get money. There doesn't seem to be any licensing or certification or, no. or, or legal thing. It's like this moment where, you know, the only comedian you're allowed to like is Hannah Gatsby, right? And everybody funny, <laughs> right? It's and everybody funny, right? And everybody funny, you're not allowed to like, but it's like, it just, it's all the funny people, right? And so it's like on this one side, you have Dave Chappelle and Louis C.K. And, and J.K. Rowling, right? And then on this other side, you have these regime apparatchiks, right? That nobody actually likes. Yet the latter still, right? It's like the Andrea Longchu Pulitzer Prize, right? The Pulitzer Prize, uh, the Nikki Hannah-Jones Pulitzer Prize, right? Like the prize still confers a lot of privilege, but they're spending down its ability to do that. And we're still at a kind of like this funny liminal stage of that process where nothing new has emerged to kind of uh, take the place of these, these bankrupt organizations that announce their bankruptness to everybody every day. Um, but that the, the kind of, 
the basic configuration is in place for that kind of succession to happen, right? And so I guess that's where something, you know, an organization attempt to, you, that's where something like Genspet steps in, right? Absolutely. You know, one of, one yeah. of the, the, the big problem with the transgender space is that WPATH, for yeah. the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, has styled itself and has held forth as the dominant, unquestioned authority on how you treat transgender youth. Um, it's been that way for decades. And there are organizations working in the background, kind of mm. incognito, that don't want to come out. Yeah. Um, that are that are challenging their science, that are putting out studies very slowly in respectable journals. But there hasn't been anyone, any organization until now that's just come forward and challenged that authority and said, um, no, you know, you don't get to just say, and you're not the only voice. So which is why Stella O'Malley, Alistair Gunn, and I decided to hold this conference that we just held in Killarney, Ireland, which was at the same time in the same town um, as EPATH, the European branch of WPATH, was holding their conference. Because yeah. we, we wanted to say to them, we're here. We have a voice. You need to listen to us as well. And we will, we will be following them and holding another conference in November in mm. Denver for the U.S. PATH version. Okay. And we have put together a think tank and are starting to uh, draft and compile our own. We're not calling them standards of care because that's a medical model. That's the WPATH model. We're, we're thinking about calling it something like the gender care framework. But we're going to put together our own guide, our own authoritative set of guidance for how you conceptualize and treat gender dysphoria because you know someone has to step up and challenge these people i mean they just they've just they, they've held sway for way too long and it's the science is bad their science is so bad they're an activist driven organization i mean how else do you account for you know a standards of care that includes a chapter on eunuch identity i mean really are we yeah. really going to take these people seriously right so um they're in this funny liminal space as well, <laughs> where they've, they've clearly driven off a cliff. They already have driven off a cliff. They stripped out all age limits right. on, on hormones, blockers, and even surgeries, <laughs> right? Um, and they said that eunuch identity is a gender identity and is a basis for castrating someone. Right. It might require surgical intervention to align internal identity with physical reality. I mean, if you don't think that's psychotic, then I don't know what to tell you. That's insane. So they've done that. They've driven off a cliff. Yeah. yeah. It has been publicized. People know about it. It's maybe not as widely as it should have been. Um, and yet they remain the gold standard. <laughs> and and uh, and people cite them as the gold standard, and and uh, and U.S. clinicians go before Congress and and they go before federal courts and say the reason why you can trust what we're doing is is sound and life saving is be we're resting our claim on the authority of this very important gold standard standard setting organization called WPATH, um, and so. 
they've gone crazy and yet they haven't lost their authority in, in much the same way as like, oh, the Pulitzer Prize Committee is still the most, one of the most prestigious uh, awards you can get. And they just gave it to uh, the person who's saying being fucked is what a female is, right? I know. Uh, oh my God. Are like you, they are gave you him that award. What's going on? Are you aware what's going on in Alabama? That they yes. the, they they want WPATH to supply them with all of the evidence which underlies their guidelines to to show the scientific basis for what they this is this is great this is what needs to happen because you know the systematic reviews that have taken place in the Nordic countries in the UK in the state of Florida all find that the evidence base for WPATH guidelines is poor to very poor right. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so we just so it happened. The, we just go ahead. It happened in Finland, Sweden, Norway, uh, the UK. They all reached the same conclusion. Right. And because you can't reach another conclusion, there just weren't. There haven't yeah. been enough studies to establish anything else. And the thing is, the affirmative model, which just says we're going to affirm anyone that shows up by default, that can't even be studied. It that's not medicine. That like there's no protocol by which you could study that because there's nothing to compare it to. It's just a cult ritual. It's a dogmatic practice that has nothing to do with evidence gathering in the first place. Yeah. Right? Like what you can study but, is you study the Dutch protocol and it, it still ends up being a, a severely compromised finding, right? But what what we are doing now goes radically uh, you know further beyond the kind of sensible cons- i mean you know relatively sensible constraints that was placed on the cohort uh you know that uh that were the dutch uh protocol those people had to be no other mental health comorbidities they had to have like affirming parents who were on board and participating they had to all they had all these things that like as we know from jamie reed and as just like rogd parents know right. they're not doing any of that crap yeah. They're not doing any gatekeeping or psychological evaluation. They're just transing them all and letting Moloch sort them out. Well, and there also there's a lot of uh, reexamination of the Dutch protocol recently yep. going on. And mm-hmm. you know, the, the one thing that sort of always gets forgotten is you know, it was a small study, maybe 72 people. And one of them died. One of them died yeah. as a result of gender affirming care. Doesn't that, isn't that like a big red flag? It's kind of amazing to me. And then this other, the ones that they followed up that long term study, kind of lifelong shame about his surgically altered genitals. I mean, yeah. is that, a, right. is that a positive outcome? Really? Yeah. And he's the one positive, he's the one long term outcome, right? Yeah, they haven't really. They're, they're, the follow-up in all of these studies is terrible, right? So, it, it, there is this process of um, hearing, you know, AAP and APA and AMA making these pronouncements, and then assuming these are trustworthy organizations, assuming that they aren't. I mean, the term is. Uh, uh, they wear them as skin suits, right? Like they gut them and then they wear these organizations as skin suits. And so that's what transgender activists and woke activists in general have done. Right. Um, and so they've gutted them. They've replaced all their normative practices with, uh, you know, what I call astroturf pseudo consensus, right? They impose this line that everybody has to buy into. And, um, but there's this process of discovery where you realize that like we're through the looking glass, we're not in Kansas anymore, right? Like all like 
and and you sound like a conspiracy theorist at that moment because you're like, oh, this 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 uh, this thing that all of these organizations are telling us is real on the on the authority of clinicians from Harvard and Yale and so on. it's totally fucking fake and how did that how did that happen for you i mean well it's i don't know it's really scary and and I, it's a very lonely experience because what are you what are you to say to people who don't know anything like what you and i know right and they see well the the american academy of pediatrics thinks this is good. The AMA thinks it's good. All these highly prestigious organizations um, are endorsing this treatment. What are you supposed to say? I mean, you say, well, they've been captured inside by a bunch of trans activists who are wearing it, like you said, as a skin suit. You sound like you do. You sound like a nut job. You're like, look um, at this post by Jesse Single. He proves that this, yeah. this, this, this study is BS. And they're like, who? Yeah. And then they do a Google search and then they find all of these transgender activists smearing him. And you're like, you're, you're talking about this hateful transphobe out there. It's like, no, he actually like looked at the data, right? Like, look at the way the, the you know, the, this, uh, this claim was completely and they, they're not following you at all, right? And like, you're the no. crazy person. It's a so, very lonely experience. It's been, I mean, until I got involved with people, and so I had colleagues who were thinking the way I did, it was very lonely. I felt totally isolated. Yeah. And, 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 but like over a course of a few years, then you sort of found your way to Genspect, and, and now you're building an organization that can, that can, set up alternative, uh, you know, alternative, I guess not medical standards, but alternative approaches. You think you have a critical mass of people that are willing to take this leap with you or uh, I do. In, in terms of a providing the knowledge base because they have done this kind of gender exploratory work and know how to guide people out of this wilderness and, and, and then know how to put together a real body of knowledge and then, and then a group of people who are going to execute it. I, I do think we have those people, and I, I think you saw the caliber of the people in Killarney, of yeah. you know people like Michael Biggs who can just take you through the evidence base on puberty blockers. You know, mm -hmm. we we right. do have those people. We have people who are talking about you know the infiltration of schools, yeah, um, and how, what we need to do about that. There's therapists like me and Lisa Marciano. There's you know, and Stella, of course. There's there's all these people, and I, I think there's more people out there than we know. Um, yeah. I cert or that most people know. I know there's lots of organizations who have been oper operating kind of in the shadows. Huh. And people were really excited when Genspec said, came out and said, will you come? Will you yeah. come? Um, people are ready to come. And now there's a lot of excitement building about doing the same thing in America, which we will do in mm. November. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, we just have to we did, we've, I think we've changed the landscape by challenging mm. WPATH in the way we did, and we just need to build it. We need to keep putting ourselves forward as an alternative authority, challenging their evidence and presenting alternative views. I, you know, I, do, I do think that the tide has turned. So in your own experience, you have successfully led a gender-confused young person out of the wilderness. Have, have you done that? I will tell you that it's it's painstaking work I've, because it's it's almost impossible to 
argue for one position when the rest of the world is telling a, a teenager something else? Yeah. I mean, right. this has never been the case in my practice. I was always the authority, right? And, <laughs> right. and now I'm not the authority. Now, I, you know, I have teenagers coming in and telling me what's true. So I've, I've made progress getting them to be a little more doubtful. I've raised doubts. Yeah. But even I'm, even I'm affected by the fear of being called a transphobe and practicing conversion therapy. I can't come out and just say, nah, you know, that's not a thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can't do that. Um, I, I've, uh, uh, the other half of my practice where I've been much more successful is I work with detransitioners, mm. particularly men who have lived as women and gone back to living as biological males. And that's, like the patients I described in that paper, it's incredibly rewarding work to me because then mm -hmm. we're in it, we're in it together. They really, they have full buy-in and I can say everything I think. That's, you know, I think to be honest, I'm not taking on any more adolescents. Mm. Yeah. Because they're caught in a vice. Yeah. I mean, these poor kids and they're just so lost and they so, They've so bought into this wacky ideology, and I, you just watch them. It's like watching a train wreck, you know. Like, really, you're gonna you're gonna ruin your life. I mean, you have these kids who are desperate to reach 18 so they can go on cross sex hormones and dismiss any kind of evidence about the risks and dangers and long term side effects of cross sex hormones as just being you know transphobic propaganda. You can't tell them anything, so. I do feel like it's practicing with one hand tied behind my back most of the time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you know, what I say is uh, in the past, kids who did not understand the long-term consequences of their action would end up pregnant. Right. And, and now they end up sterile, right? Uh, and so, um, uh, but they, they, they're still willing to show up. Their parents are like, well, we have this therapist for you. And they meet with you and you, uh, you try to help them with their other mental health comorbidities and are able to have some effect maybe on some of those aspects. Totally. I mean, I, I tend to, I tend to avoid addressing gender directly because then I find it just becomes this recounting of the law, the language they've heard on the internet. And it's just, yeah. just, you know, just doesn't mean anything to me. So I, I think my usual um, entry point into working with these kids is to say, look, if I'm going to help you sort this all out, I need mm -hmm. to know all about you. I need to, yeah. you're not just as Sasha says, it, you're not just a walking gender identity. There's a whole complex person. And I yeah. need to know all about that. If I'm going to help you make the best decision you can when you turn mm -hmm. 18. And um, that does opens up the doors because these kids do have complex lives. They have a lot of other things going on. So you see these videos of like these girls who are like doing their gender announcements, right? And you're like, that's it's just a girl. <laughs> and like the people that you're seeing, the, you know, the teenagers to the extent that you do, you're like, this is just a confused boy or girl. How could it be otherwise? And, but you hear in the language of the Democratic Party, of legislatures that are willing to ban conversion therapy, that are willing to deny detransition care almost entirely out of sadistic spite, right? Because they regard uh, any concern uh, for the victims of their policies, which they, uh, according to their own dogmas, are not supposed to produce any victims. And therefore we have to punish uh, the, the victims that we create or not even recognize their pain, right? Like 
they, so the, uh, just a, a complete unwillingness for them just to look at these actual, these actual obviously just confused kids. And I guess in some cases, some of these confused kids are their relatives' kids or their even their own kids, and yet something is preventing them from just seeing them as they are. And, and that is terrifying. The Democratic Party is a big problem right now. I mean, I don't, you see probably, were you referring to what happened in Texas this week yeah. about this yeah. bill getting voted down? But it's happened I mean, elsewhere too, I think, right? Yeah. But also, yeah. Yeah. For the, for the audience who doesn't know, there was a bill that was actually sponsored by a lot of parents within Genspect working its way through the Texas legislature. And what it was, was going to require providers of transition services, healthcare providers, insurance companies to also cover complications from transition and those who wanted to detransition. And the Democrats managed to defeat it and cheered, cheered in the state legislature when it went down. I mean, that's crazy. The problem is the Democrats look at it as it's the next civil rights frontier. This, you know, this is the new gay and just trying to get them to see that it's actually not, this is not the new gay. It's entirely different. And it's not, it's, this is not a question of civil rights. It's, it's not what it's about. But it's, you know, it's like talking to a wall most of the time. So why is it totally different? Why is it totally different? Because, well, when I think back when, you know, first of all, gay and lesbian rights are about the freedom to be attracted to, have sex with, and marry the people that they love, and just live normal um, society, normal lives like other people in society do is very kind of, I mean, I think that's why we ultimately succeeded is because we kind of went like, we're just like you. Now what trans is doing is trans is rewriting reality, redefining biology and, and telling the whole world that we have to adapt to their view of themselves and we have to conform to this new ideology. It's completely different. It's not about their individual rights, which trans people have the same rights as everybody else. It's about forcing society to re reconceive of reality and sexual, sexual biology in a way that's just, I don't know, it's nothing like fighting for gay rights. So this is what Mike Bloomberg said, if you recall. Uh, it w there was leaked audio of him just being like, uh, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to do anything different, you know, to let someone be gay, you know, and whereas... You know, and he and he made a prediction that you know if if the if a big issue and the next thing is like uh, there's this guy that wants to be you know showering with your daughter, <laughs> right? Like uh, it's not going to be good for the Democrats. And then of course he had to repudiate this and he had to bend the knee and he had to uh, you know in order to run during that brief moment where it seemed like you know he was trying to run. Right. Um, and, and, and that was when we knew that there was a, just a, you know, that there was a greater power that was at work. It, it, I mean, B Bloomberg owns the Democratic Party to some degree, right? And, right. and yet, and yet the activists of the Democratic Party had, were able to dictate to him. Not the other way around. That's um, really, it's really upsetting and really scary to me. And uh, my, my big hope is that in the next, next election cycle, the Democrats are going to be punished for embracing this ideology. Because if you look at the polls, you know, it's not a popular, it's not a popular view. It, it's not salient enough is the problem, A, I think. And, yeah. and because it's, it, 
it is still rare enough that most people can have a, a very abstract understanding of it, right? And, and and so that's why it's these, and of course you're one of them, it's these ROGD parents in blue enclaves. I have so much like empathy for them. Like they're caught in such a in, in, in such a torturous, tortuous vice <laughs> right. that they know something to be true about their child. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? The that whole world is weighing enclaves. in against them. What's that? It's interesting that they that these kids are in blue enclaves. I mean, yeah. in, 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 in environments that support this kind of progressive ideology. Yeah. Um, but they are everywhere too, because the internet is everywhere. And right. this, and schools in very red enclaves are also supporting the ideology because it is, it is an ideology, not just of the internet and of, it, it is an, it, it is an ideology of this kind of clerical class, right? Who, who've kind of taken on a, you know, a new, a new meaning and significance, right? When they can, uh, and so administrators and school officials, various like bureaucratic functionaries, you know, they, they've, they've taken to this mission. And, and so, you know, I, I interviewed someone who is a teacher at a, a town. She was like, yeah, this 95% of this town voted for Trump, but it's in Oregon. So it's, and, and so they had to put, tampons in the boys' bathroom, right? Like these mandates come from the state, they come from the federal government and everyone has to do it. And of course the boys waterlog the tampons and, and trash the bathroom, right? <laughs> As boys will do. Yes, of course. Uh, but what are they doing? They're revolting against the power that is going to be over them for the rest of their lives, maybe. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, that's... Uh, but you say that you, that we you feel that there's been a turn, uh, and there has been a turn. Of course, you know we have these European countries that have made the turn. Uh, well, but, you know other examples of the turn. I mean, right. you've seen them. I mean, um, Robin Respo and her group did that great series of articles on on gender medicine for Reuters, and the yep. New York Times has actually allowed people to question yep. the value of puberty blockers, whether or not it's worth. The risks. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, there was a huge uproar, of course. And Pamela right. Paul wrote that article defending J.K. Rowling. So, yep. I mean, I, I do feel like the, the New York Times is, is opening things up. Yep. Barry Weiss and her group, the Free Press, they're yep. covering gender. And she's got a huge reach. Yeah, um, right. There are signs of hope to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, in general... What are what is your understanding of the best practices? Uh, and 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 just and I guess you can't really, you know, for gender dysphoric youth. Is it about just kind of like laying some foundation so they'll have something to lean on maybe ten years in the future? How do you understand the process as a therapist uh, dealing with the gender frenzy in the moment, with the culture where it is, with the medical establishment where it is? Yeah, it's it's with teenagers who are um, zealous about this new ideology. It's very difficult to open up a psychotherapeutic space and get them to think. Yeah, um, that's really kind of all you can do is to try and you know encourage them in a process of critical thought and to to be to be more curious about themselves. You know, like what else is going on and who they are. What are the you know what other feelings that they have about other things? That's all you can do because the rest of the world is sounding the drumbeat constantly of this ideology. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, that, that's the general principle in terms of, um, more specific cases. It's like with the girls, it's like, yeah, what's so awful about being a girl? And there's many reasons. I mean, I have, I have young adolescents who are, who hate their bodies because they hate periods. They, mm. they, they hate the idea of sick sex. They hate the pornographi- pornified view of women that they, the sexualized um, version of femininity that they've encountered and they don't ever want to have sex. So you have to help. That's part of it. I think with the boys, it's a lot about, you know, degraded views of manhood, no positive sense of how you could grow up to be a a kind of man you might like to be. It all seems terrible. Society hates you. So, you know, I I think those are the general principles. And then the kind of the two central issues that I see with boys and girls. Mm. Yeah. And so those two identities that you described you know, the girls are a new way of being trans. They weren't part of the taxonomy, right? Like you didn't have that population. They were memed into existence, uh, you know, right around 2015 by influencers, by Tumblr. Uh, and the AGP thing, it's like there are still homosexual transsexuals, right? And there are still those who were dysphoric from a very early age, and, you know, I, I don't want to say true chans or anything like that, but those are, they're those who are the, the truly dysphoric, right? Who, who, you know, and quite different from those who at an age earlier than, because the AGP is usually like, you know, they're often, they, they, they are married, have children, they're cross-chesting throughout the whole time. And then at a certain point, the, the, um, you know, maybe in their forties or fifties, you know, this is, this is more the, uh, Rich, Richard Levine, right? Trajectory, right? They, they decide that I, oh, I, you know, I have to live as a woman. I have to, and especially I have to rise to this moment where transgender identity is, you know, is being consolidated. I want to have a part in that, right? And I want other kids who had uh, cross-dressing fantasies when they were kids to fully enter into their fantasies and not have to look like me, right? Like I'm going to give them that, you know, that gift. Right. I think that's kind of what is driving it for him. And it's a, it's a, it's a mortifying, right? Like awful thing to, to see being played out on the airwaves of this nation's, right? Like federal government and, you know, the president standing entirely behind him and the president's spokesperson, right? Three days after uh, a mass murder, right? In a, in a Nashville church saying these kids fight back and we have their back, right? Like those are actual quotes that she said. I know. Um, so it, this is something from like RoboCop, right? This is something from some 1980s, you know, Terry Gilliam dystopian thriller that we are, that we are witnessing. Uh, and, I want, and yeah, I want to say something about the, the AGP thing. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I, I want to write a paper called expanding the Blanchard typology. Yeah. Because I do, I do think, and if you're, if you're in online spaces listening to these guys, there does seem to be kind of like a new version. That's of, what I'm saying. They're younger trend. and they're right. And they get, they, they get into it in a different way. Um, the, the, um, the, the third patient that I talk about in my, yeah. in my presentation, I think is this example of, of boys who are growing up 
unable to identify any kind of a positive male role model, yeah. um, hate themselves as men, um, don't want to be men. So they've got this, this shame, this coarse shame that they're living with. And I, I think that they find these, well, I could call them groomers. I don't know what you want to call them, but these older men online who are seeing, they, they identify these low self-esteem boys and they start flattering them and grooming them into these sexual, um, relations, which, you know, kind of alleviate the shame temporarily and feel good. I mean, masturbation feels good. These boys, it's a temporary relief. Then they feel awful afterwards. But I think it's, it's this new formation of, of AGP that's in, that's induced by the, the, the moment we live in, this cultural moment in which men are reviled and boys are growing up feeling shitty about themselves. Social edu justice education by maniacal <laughs> man-hating women is producing a new way of being trans, I think. It's weird. And, and, then, and then our social media interconnectedness allows a group of, you know, older, really damaged groomers to have access to these kids. And then, and then once they get their hooks on to them, they then go to an affirming therapist who's like, oh, yeah, you're a woman. Right. <laughs> and then blocks their puberty. <laughs> but you can imagine, you can imagine the lure for a, a teenage boy who feels unattractive and feels terrible about himself to have this older man just heaping praise on him, telling him how pretty he looks when he puts on that dress. You know, you can just, it's, you can see how it's, it's insidious. I mean, this is what Stephen was talking about. Uh, and, you know, uh, where he's like, I look, I was groomed on social media. And if you go to certain sites, Egg in Real Life on Reddit, I don't know if you ever looked at it, but yeah. apparently, you know, you have these young 13 to 17 year old debutantes who show up and were like, and then get heaped with uh, praise by a population of older groomers and. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds to a lot of people like odious reactionary moral panic when you describe the facts it, it, in the same way that like when you describe, oh, all these organizations have been captured by entryists from the transgender agenda, you know, like you sound crazy, but all you're doing is describing what happened. And then you're like, yeah. there's a website where people, uh, where boys compete for the attention of, uh, of, a of a population of older male trans identified groomers who egg them on to, and, and tell them that, oh, you look like a girl and, and then enter their DMs and start giving them gifts, right? Like this sounds like the gay panic of like the seventies and eighties, right. which I guess wasn't true, but this, is true and how do we talk it's about true. that without how do we tell that truth without the democrat and left-wing media being like oh there's this terrible reactionary moral panic going on which of course is how it's being covered in the times and other places even well, though they all are of my, yeah yeah all of my friends are saying exactly the same thing and i i try to point out to them that you know, it's not happening in a vacuum. The, the, the Republicans are reacting to something the progressives did by pushing too far to the left. You know, it's not just, oh, we're going to weaponize this thing out of nothing. It's like, it's, yeah, 
<laughs> but it does it does feel crazy making. I mean, like people, you know, can say to you, "Well, why do you care about one or two kids going and boys going into the girls' bathroom? Why is that a big deal to you? Why do you care about, you know, these drag queens reading to these kids? Why does that matter to you?" Um and you do sound, you can sound easy like a bigot if you, if you harp on these things. But, you know, somebody said on Twitter recently, it's like, why don't drag queens want to go um, read books at retirement homes? <laughs> right. It's like, what, what are you really, I want to, I say to my progressive friends, is drag queen story hour really the hill you're going to die on? You really, you really think that's a great idea? <laughs> And it is incredible who can be induced into, you know, by negative partisanship to just, just like, oh yeah, start taking their kids to drag queen shows, right? Just to prove that they're not bigots or whatever. Uh, and, and I saw the beginnings of this with my five-year-old daughter where I took her to this like play space where they were having this thing called the rainbow party, which should have actually, you know, uh, drawn more, uh, skepticism on my part but yeah you had this little like five foot you know very flamboyant man reading to these five-year-olds about a an lgbtq parade right and you know i looked around at the other parents they seemed like very normal parents they didn't seem like some glitter you know rainbow family and i was like does anybody else feel weird about this and it's like okay like the kids don't understand it they're too young but this is obviously the beginning of a sustained uh, you know, uh, conditioning that they intend to, uh, to put all these kids through. And so we're going to leave. I'm not going to make a fuss. If I make a fuss, it's going to be, you know, it's going to do the damage that like I don't want done. Right. Yes, like yes. to kind of spill all of this stuff that is just age inappropriate. Right. For a five-year-old. Um, so, but I'm not going to go back. <laughs> right. And I, yes. I was, I was glad to see that the place shut down. Uh, but, you know, I think it was COVID that shut it down. Um, but, that's now normative. Like that's right. the, that's the foundation of what everybody's getting. Now, as a, as a gay man, right? Like, ha, like you must feel somewhat ambivalent about all that, right? Because. Um, I do not have any ambivalence about okay. it. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that, that drag is adult sexual entertainment. Yeah. And I don't particularly enjoy it, but I don't have a problem with other people enjoying it. It doesn't belong anywhere near children. It's just yeah. really simple. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, oh, like, uh, what, the, what, what all this is supposed to do, right? It's like gays were bullied. You were in the closet, I guess, for a long time. And it's like, oh, we're going we're gonna to make it so that, like, no kid, you know, is ever uh, – is ever not affirmed, doesn't saw. I mean, obviously they've taken it to a completely insane place, but you see where it's coming from. Like a generation of people who were traumatized, right? Uh, and, you know, by their experiences in very heteronormative schools. And I remember those schools, uh, you, know, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, and probably more so for you, uh, you know, prior to that. So, like, there, there, there should be a way to... Just be like, look, we want to, we don't want kids to be bullied. We want to be comfortable with themselves, but we don't want to tell them bullshit about how anyone can be born in the wrong body. Right. Like, it, I think like it, the vast majority of people would be behind that vision, including really? people who vote Republican, be fine with that. And yet somehow we're not able to reach that point. And 
I, I don't know. Like, is there a way to get there? Is is my question. I don't know. I, I it feels to me that on the one hand, this this era looks like we're this really tolerant, embracing society in which trans kids can come out. It looks so progressive, and yet. On the other hand, it's really regressive because it, what we used to do is we used to try to expand the opportunities for boys to be different ways and for girls to be different ways and to stop bullying for nonconformity. Yeah. And well, we're, maybe we're not bullying nonconformity anymore, but, but now we're telling them, well, you're actually the other sex. Yeah. Um, so th- that's we're just, medicalizing nonconformity. We are medicalizing them. And we're eradicating um, it <laughs> in the process. But you, you do see, you do see if you look at the backgrounds of these kids, again and again, you see they were, they were weird. They were somehow odd and they were bullied. And when they transitioned, the bullying stopped and they became heroes. Well, who's not going to choose that route? You know, mm-hmm. right. You know, as opposed to being encouraged, you know, stopping the bullying and encouraging kids you know, to find more adaptive ways to, you know, to behave and to fit in. But, I don't know. It's very seductive, the idea of that becoming a trans hero, or what used to be the loser, and now you're the trans hero. So that happens, and it's like, we're going to, what we did at the school, we can do in the world. We can make the whole world be as supportive, and and we can force that to happen. And that's the kind of the vision. Because here's the thing, like, the data says that, like, 60 to 90 percent will uh uh they will desist right right but they were desisting in the heteronormative world right where you know you would be punished for continuing to be uh and and now we're saying we're going to create this this queer trans normative world right uh and and then we're going to make it so that we're going to uh, in the same way that we're going to punish the bullies at school and we're going to make you a hero, we'll do that in a country of 350 million, right? And and everybody who stands in the way of that is an oppressor, is a, is a hateful Republican, is seeking genocide, all of this kind of, you know, which also has the effect of like giving giving the kind of private discontents and identifications of these kids that they make recourse to, giving them this story of a, of a great struggle. It's like the X-Men, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you have these monsters that are out to destroy you. Um, and and that, that has political utility for the Democratic Party, and that's why they have, have, have glommed onto it so, so quickly. And, um, uh, and, and that's the vision. The vision the, and, and so you have these kids that would have assisted in the past, but now you have a new kind of cohort that we socially influence into existence and provided all of these incentives for them to do this thing. And because we have selected for a cohort that is easily socially influenced, that means the social influence can be extended into perpetuity, right? And so you won't see the same kind of desistance so long as we are creating this whole uh, virtual reality that we make coextensive the world and we make the federal government and other entities, you know, enforcers of that virtual reality. Well... But I, I mean, the, the reality-based, my reality-based view is, um, yeah. okay, so we do all of this, and then right. you have this generation of young people who have come out as trans, they've, you know, they've seized their identity, and they think that they're done. 
right? That that's, right. that's an achievement. And they don't, yeah. one of the things I'm always saying to my kids is, you know, what are you going to do after you transition? Like, how are you going to earn a living? What are you going to do with your, for a career? You know, I, I think in this generation is growing up thinking that they're done, you know, once they, uh, so, so how, how will a society work when nobody really has any idea about work and achievement and they just think they're going to embrace their identity. How does that work? That's not sustainable. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, there are all these polls showing the number one, uh, the, the number one thing that people, uh, that young, that children aspire to be is, uh, is an influencer. Exactly. On YouTube or TikTok. So the trans thing, obviously, in empirical terms, right? It is this, it is this vector to being an online influencer. So in a way, like Dylan Mulvaney is sort of is the hero of a rising generation, right? Like he's the, the, the most empowered, he's Napoleon on, on horseback, right? In the year 2023. Can't, uh, they can't all be media influencers, right? <laughs> no, they, they cannot. That is true. It's like they, like the, <laughs> you can't all be movie stars. Yeah. You can, you can try and be an actor, but there's only so many movie stars. Right. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, so your daughter taking her, her trust fund and using it all on surgery, right? Is right. the, yeah. it's like rather than education and, and right. it's, is exactly. like the kind of perfect example of that. And, but it's kind of like you, one understands the appeal, all of your problems, all of your insecurities, your, your, your comorbidities, everybody's telling you to, route it into this one source and then and then it's you know in the same way that the video game provides you a simulacrum of achievement and of competitive you have you always have a set of goals right to to achieve to become this other thing to become this transcendent expression of what you're being told is is, is that your true inner self it's this whole massive society wide role playing game that we created for a, a small subpopulation and, and dragooned the rest of society to participate in, we can see it in those terms uh, because we're still securely enough rooted in the, the pre-virtual reality reality. Uh, but it's like all, all of these in, in, or all of these organs of culture and society are working to make that virtual reality subsume reality. And that, and so it is a kind of hyper politics in this sense, right? It is this it thing is, that has not existed before. It hasn't existed before, yeah. but I don't know. This is when I get really pessimistic is I, you know, how does yeah. an economy, how does an economy function? I mean, this, we're going to become completely dysfunctional. Camille Paglia says that this kind of androgyny is a feature of late empire. Um, it's we're well, we're collapsing, and you know China <laughs> and India—they're not going to put up with this nonsense. And they'll take over the world, and we'll go down. I mean, how can we? Yeah. How can an economy? There, there's there's no economic future in this vision of you know trans identity. Like, there's nothing productive about it. It, it is the specific form that a culture of pure signaling, a culture of pure narcissism. Takes. And so I guess this goes back to like the kind of your work on narcissism and shame. And maybe we can kind of wrap it up by kind of bringing it, bringing it back to that, right? Because it's, it's the, it's, it's a, uh, it's the, you know, it's the, it's the metastasized form of these underlying 
uh, of these underlying precursors. Do you see what I mean? You mean of, of narcissism in the culture? Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's this kind of, it's this kind of terminal state of, uh, uh, you know, narcissism takes many different forms and many containers. This is kind of this final form where your narcissism is is actually is actually enforced by the government, right? Where the way I see myself is the way you must see me, and as you must, it's it's an evolution in the whole concept of what it means to have a right, and 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 to have, and then to dragoon the state into being the enforcer of that claim, right? Like that's why it is fascinating to me. And, and, but like it comes from, it comes from these antecedent movements in that direction, right? Like, you know, that, that, that we've, that we've, that we have, uh, operationalized and we have monetized, right? Uh, uh, narcissism to the point where, uh, you know, that all the powers at B are able to decree that, like, uh, that, that it, that it is, that, that it is a, a compelling, uh, you know, moral imperative that, that others share in your false interview of yourself. And that's a right that you obtain. And that if you don't have that right, a violence has been done to you. And that if society doesn't participate in that, uh, you know, in that, uh, in that false inner conception, then a genocide has happened. <laughs> And it justifies any kind of violence on your behalf, on your coming from you. I, I would, you know, this whole idea of narcissism, the book, the book I want to write, the next thing I would like to write is really an update of Lash. In, in, you know, he diagnosed America famously as suffering from a narcissistic disorder. I think what we've got now is a culture that suffers from borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And, and this, this, my most recent essay, living in an as if world is really is really looking at the way that this kind of detachment from reality this as if sort of existence that we're living where you can just make it up as you go along is leading um to the, this first of all this detachment from reality but also increasingly borderline behavior where borderline rage vicious assaults attempts to destroy people which is kind of what borderlines are like. Um, I, it's widespread. It dominates Twitter, for sure. If you're on Twitter, Twitter's like a nonstop borderline rage all the time. Um, I do think there's this cultural pathology that's gotten much, much worse. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I just feel like, uh, can we, even though I feel like I say the tide has turned, I think, can we really pull out? Can we pull back? Um, when the society is this ill, and I don't know. <laughs> so, what is borderline personality disorder, and uh, and and how do you see it manifesting in the culture? As well? well, the 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 um, the personality disorders, but particularly borderline personality disorder, are characterized by an unstable sense of self um, that vacillates back and forth between feeling you know, like you're superior and then feeling like you're trash. It, um, it has it unstable emotional states, frequent outbursts of rage when you are challenged, when you aren't validated. Um, it's the people are, are prone to, um, various kinds of addictions. 
Um, they have a hard time forming realistic and lasting relationships. They tend to blow up their friendships, family relationships. Um, these, these features, they sound to me like, if you look closely, they sound a lot like the way trans rights activists behave, that they really, to me, are the embodiment of, of a cluster B personality disorder. Mm -hmm. particularly borderline personality disorder. But then you take it, if you take it just on the way people respond to one another in space, on the way people will, you know, be enraged about nothing and take other people down, um, if it will feel slighted and will go on, you know, just go off in an explosive way. I think social media really is characterized by borderline kinds of communication. And so people like that were disincentivized or they were punished, they would fail, their relationships would fail. They never were, they were never able to take their demands and format them in such a way that the state and medical establishment and educational establishment would recognize them and be on their side. That's the new thing, isn't it? Right? That that personality configuration found a way to institutionalize itself and to win. Yeah, that's, that's a very dark thought. But yes, you're right. It's absolutely true. I mean, the, the borderline delusion is validated by the world now. You know. uh, do you think that there's going to be a decompression and, uh, and uh, I mean, and a mass... Uh, um, you know, because this new population that we memed into existence, right, is reality going to, and I've talked about this infinitely extensible socially influenced virtual reality that can be sustained for a long time, that, that our federal government and our Democratic Party has fully committed, and, and our major corporations, right, have like fully committed to sustaining. Is reality going to prevail in 15 years' time? when that population realizes, hey, it was never real. And will we then be able to pull ourselves back from this madness because, because reality will have reasserted itself in the way that reality always does? Or is reality postponable through power and influence and media domination and so on for a long time? Um, here's my hope about reality prevailing. Um, it's the next generation. Yeah. The the younger kids, we talked yeah. about this, you and I, like maybe they define right. themselves in in you know in, in antagonistically towards this ideology. Yeah. That right. might happen. Reality I think And by the way, are are you uh, th this referred to a tweet saying um you know by John Kay saying like, "Oh, I'm hearing from parents about their you know, eighth grade, you know, high school aged kids that, you know, now that this is the ideology coming from top down, they are rebelling against it. Are you seeing that like sort of anecdotally? And I'm not personally seeing it, but okay. I'm hearing about it. I, I right. want to see it. I really want to see it. Um, <laughs> okay. But I, I come about reality prevailing in another way. I mean, it, it's an unsustainable fiction that we're selling to these kids because, okay, you're trans, but you, you, we still have to have, still have to have a job. You still have to support yourself. And if we don't, if we create a generation of kids who aren't engaged in the economy, who yeah. don't have any way to earn a living, what happens? 
Yeah. I mean, do we just I mean, all fall apart? I mean, Stephen described like a kind of group house in Vermont, you know, with like eight trans identified people. They're all from middle and upper middle class homes, but you know, they're, they're living on the edge of society, right? They're living this kind of outsiders like existence. And I'm very interested in that milieu. Uh, and, 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 and so that's the world you're talking about, right? Like right. these kids are only focused on their identities. They are not focused on anything else. Is it, is there any resemblance to like the, the hippies who lived on communes in the sixties and eventually grew up and got jobs? <sighs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders, right. He says he went to Vermont after, uh, and then, and then became what he was like, you know, he, he's this kind of, you have this kind of community of uh, perma left-wing activists, right? And he was the most, you know, the most empowered of that group, right? And he and he challenged for the presidency at a certain point and helped to change the politics of the country also to some degree, or at least the culture of the Democratic Party. And for a while, he was seen as a kind of something of a, a kind of, you know, materialistic, uh, material old uh, leftist who was an alternative to, uh, you know, hyper-wokeness. But I, you know, I think there's been a merger and a melding where, where, you know, you have cities where, you know, that are running these experiments on defunding police and, uh, you know, giving power to the nonprofit Borg and, you know, where, you know, where everybody has their uh, pronouns and where, you know, she, her is not enough. You have to be at least she, they, right. To have any, right. To have any credibility. Uh, and, uh, that's just one culture now, right? It's, you know, the, the AOC, Bernie, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not a, it's not an alternative. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's a self-sustaining, I think it's a self-sustaining world, right? Um, but like you do have these detransitioners who at a very young age, they, they don't, they totally passed. They were affirmed by everyone, but they realized, you know, so everything that one could ask for, everything that Richard Levine couldn't have, that, that you know, all the gifts that he wanted to give to these young cross-gendered people. But reality took hold at a certain point. And then they were like, what the fuck did I do to myself? <laughs> right? Exactly. And, and so to, you know, to see those people, um, uh, it's, it's, it's incredible the power of the memeplex that, that, allowed them to do those things in the first place. And it's a real study in sort of like human suggestibility and, totally. and conformity and power and just the way that signaling is enough actually to just like repeating some BS can really convince people to, to cut their junk off. Right. Um, and, um, but the fact that like reality eventually like the rubber hit the road at some point and they're like, you know, of course this is not real. How could this ever be real? And I guess you've, you've talked to a lot of people who had that moment. I have. And, and, I, and I'm and, and it takes a long time. I'm I think the average is like seven years before oh you really start to experience regret. So we're just, we got a long way to go yet. Uh, Okay, so this has been an interesting conversation. Is there anything else uh, I should be thinking about? Or oh, probably a dozen things. But yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> okay. Anything else you want to add? Uh, no, this was a really great of... conversation. I enjoyed it. Okay, good. Thanks a lot, and uh, I'll uh, I'll post this. And the thing is that, like, I, 
you know, much of the value of going to something like GenSpec is just having conversations with people who are starting from the baseline of what's real. Because, because like, I still have all of these, you know, th th these, uh, these triggers that have been induced in me that like, I feel weird and it feels cathartic to be like, of course, this is not real. And, and, and because, because there's been, it's been so, you know, viciously defended and, and, uh, you know, I risk, uh, you know, I risk social and, and professional death by saying it. And, uh, and, but you, you know, you've been through it. You, you never wavered. And, uh, right from the beginning, uh, you knew that, of course, this thing cannot be real. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I realize there's all these risks out there for people, but, you know, you have to have integrity. You have to stand up for what you know is true. I don't, I, there's no alternative. How do you live with yourself? Many people are exploring the other alternatives, and uh, <laughs> the answers are not good. It involves a lot of uh, it involves a lot of self abasement and uh, and uh, selling of one's integrity, and uh, often involves uh, hurting other people uh, for their integrity. So yeah, it's bad. Yep, Wesley, it was great talking to you. All right, thanks a lot. You bet. You are about to embark upon the great crusade. The old myth. The eyes of the world are upon you. Not classroom theory. I saw it happen. And then begin to inculcate Do you have a martyr complex? Let me tell you, we all Do you have a militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights? Your task will not be an easy one. The road ahead will be long. We're going to make sure that society wins.